Good afternoon, and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an award-winning show that inspires, educates, and empowers patients, survivors, and caregivers to live well with cancer. to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Natalie Castelli, Senior Director at the Cancer Support Community. For more than 35 years, we at the Cancer Support Community have been a relentless ally for anyone impacted by cancer. We help individuals manage the realities of this disruptive disease and get back to normal. Whether accessing our free services in person at one of 175 locations, online, or over our toll-free helpline, you're getting a team of licensed professionals providing patient navigation, financial counseling, genetic counseling, pediatric support, and more. Today's show is part of our special series, Young and Diagnosed, which focuses on the unique challenges and experiences of young adults facing a cancer diagnosis. In each episode, you will meet inspiring young people who will share their stories and insights with honesty and candor. Young and Diagnosed is brought to you by Genentech. Life changes in an instant. In a pre-pandemic world, we would have greeted that statement with an eye roll at the very least. But after almost two years in, we can only nod in weary agreement. Jacqueline Smith, and Evan Ruggiero are living proof of just how quickly and randomly life can change. Diagnosed with cancer in their 20s, their dreams and plans suddenly put on pause. These young survivors are now exploring what comes after. And as they'll tell you, their new paths are in many ways more rewarding than anything they could have imagined or might have chosen before their lives took an unthinkable detour. First up, Jacqueline Smith. For Jacqueline Smith, discipline was second nature. I was a classical pianist. I started playing piano when I was six. So my life was like a metronome. <laughs> you know, it click, clicking. Every note has to be right on beat. But at age 21, still in college, that rhythm was suddenly disrupted when she found a lump above her bikini line. It was hard and it was growing. You know, it wasn't painful. Um, and then I graduated and, and the, the doctor said, you know what, it's an inflamed lymph node. If it doesn't bother you, don't bother it. So she went on with her life, graduated from college and began what she called her winding road of a career path, putting her major in child and family studies to work as a juvenile probation officer in Orlando. And spending those years wholly unaware that all the while there was microscopic disease growing and spreading through her body. In graduate school, as she was pursuing her PhD, it happened again. She found a lump. Same place, same feel. Same exact thing all over again. Like there's a lump in my bikini line, okay? This can't be something serious, but I have a feeling it is. I go to the doctor and again, oh no, you're fine. But she was not fine. This time she knew something was wrong and pushed to see a surgeon. I knew that if I stayed silent and you know, crossed my fingers and hoped for the best and it was something serious that 
I, I, I really just wouldn't be here. Uh, so that's what made me push. And, and I joke now that I, I don't mind being kind of the squeaky wheel because that's why I'm still alive. The surgeon was concerned enough to perform a fine needle biopsy. And said he's going to rush the results so that he'd have them the next day. The news was not good. And the next day, the surgeon called and said, Jackie, we found melanoma cells. It's stage three. And one of the things he said to me, too, which stuck with me, he said, now today you can be sad for the rest of the day. Tomorrow, I need you to only be sad for half of the day. And by day three, you have to get up and make a plan. Planning was her superpower. She started her research. And, you know, everyone's referring me here and there and everywhere, and I'm calling different surgeons. And um, uh, there was one surgeon I spoke to in New York City. He was a plastic surgeon because I didn't want to be, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was younger. I said, I want, I want to have the best, like the least amount of scarring. He referred her to Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa. And then he said something that completely changed her treatment journey. He said to me, make me a promise. If you're offered a clinical trial, please take that opportunity. And then he told me that that would be, that would give me the best chance for survival because that's the newest treatment. And um, I hadn't thought that far out about what treatment would look like. Ultimately, she connected with Dr. Vernon Sondak at Moffitt. I don't know how I found his email, but I emailed him. I told him about my melanoma saga, and he gave me the number for his scheduler and told me to come in, come in and see him. And that's what I did. And I remember from the time that I initially emailed him until my appointment, I emailed him a lot with new questions, you know, new concerns. And at one point he said, okay, write down all of your concerns and bring them in and we will go through them each, every single one. And I, I always joke, even now I joke that I'm surprised he hadn't blocked me because I, it was excessive. It was a lot. During the appointment, Jacqueline's mother asked the unspeakable. My mom said, you know, is, is she going to die? Is my daughter going to die? And he honestly answered, well, you know, yes, like at some point. And I kind of laughed because I'm like, yeah, like clearly, you know, eventually. And he, he did say, like, if we have this surgery and she goes on a treatment, like she has a good chance. But if she doesn't have this surgery, it's more than likely that this cancer will kill her. Um, and so that too, like, it was a little bit of humor, but it calmed me a little. And the fact that he said that, and then he really did go through and answer each and every question and made sure I was comfortable with what he was saying. Um, I knew that I really would be a partner in my care, not just the object of this care. Um, and so I, you know, I, I went on, I had surgery. The surgery called a groin dissection involved removing her pelvic and inguinal lymph nodes. She also qualified for a clinical trial. And I joke now that I, one of my claims to fame is being one of the first enrollees in the pegylated interferon trial um, in the country. So, you know, that's one of my things. And then I also had to have radiation. So um, I went through all of that and I finished all of my treatment by 2009 and I'm thankfully still here and no evidence of disease. Her recovery was not without challenges. Her father, who had been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, was bedbound. Her mother was his caregiver. And Jacqueline, an only child, felt responsible for their emotional and physical well-being. 
She wanted to protect them. Yet here she was in need of a caregiver herself and having a hard time accepting or even asking for help. But then it was also difficult for me to need a caregiver. So after my surgery, I had to have um, home health care come in, oh. clean my wound and you know help with the drains. And um, when I was going through my treatment, I was very weak and, and sick. And I remember my mom referring to herself as my caregiver and that was very hard for me to take. It's scary to, to be the person that needs to be cared for. And you really don't know how long you might need all of that care. And that, that, that was frightening, especially in my 20s, to have to be in that position. Like many cancer patients, Jacqueline always felt she had to put up a brave front, if not for her extended family, than for her friends. It was interesting. I, I felt I, <laughs> I had to be the strong one for so many people. Um, I would have friends call and they're crying and they're saying, well, why you? <laughs> and um, I, I joke, one of my younger cousins used to talk to me as if I were fragile glass. So he always whispered when he talked to me and he would call and he'd say, hi, Jacqueline. And I said, Mikey, you can, you can talk to me like, your normal voice and so um it was very interesting dealing with other people and kind of their fears and um I remember sometimes like hanging up and wondering how am I able to calm everyone else down because um that that's really what it it ended up being a lot of me managing other people's fears and uh, emotions Tending to everyone's well-being was especially tough as she suffered through the side effects of her treatment, the wounds from surgery and radiation, and worst of all, the lymphedema, which left her legs swollen. To this day, she endures a complicated routine that she admits is not a good luck. For me, that is having my leg wrapped from my toes to my thigh, like in bandages and foam and it's just not attractive. And so because of the lymphedema, like my leg swells, it's a little bigger. My right leg is larger than my left. And, and I'm self-conscious about that. And um, I can't wear heels, you know, so all of these things that you feel like you associate with being like, you know, feminine. I, you know, I wear pants more because I don't want people to ask why about my compression stocking. And, and so they're just these little issues that I have. It makes her feel, she says, like damaged goods. I joke, but I, I say like it's like the factory imperfect where, you know, like you go to the outlet store and there's something wrong with this shirt, but you can't see with the eye, perhaps. But, you know, there's something wrong because it's here. Um, and so that's how I feel sometimes. And and to just be accepted and appreciated and, and loved, it, it means the world to me. It's difficult to, to grow up with something like that. And I remember another story. I had to wear a compression stocking. And one of our neighbors said, oh, well, that's nothing. I wear those. And I said, yeah, but you're 68 years old. Like, you know, like, I'm not. I'm 28. Like, I don't want to wear these. <laughs> so, you know, you don't want to be in the category of a 68-year-old man. But here I am. On the inside, she may feel like damaged goods. But to the outside world, Jacqueline seemed to have it Altogether, she didn't lose her hair or her spirit. Like after kind of recovering from surgery, I started taking fossil lessons. And I remember this one guy joking because he thought I looked a lot younger than I was. And he was like, well, whatever that stuff is you're taking for cancer, I want some of it because it seems like it's preserving you. Uh, you know, and so it was just like people just really didn't think I was 
sick. And I, so I think that perhaps not looking sick helps people deal with it a little better. Since her recovery, this self-described squeaky wheel who had always wanted to make the world a better place has become a champion and fierce advocate for patients with melanoma. Yeah, I hope I'm making some change, but <laughs> I mean, I think also it, it, like it's a delicate balance between being like the hall monitor and then being the fear monger. So you don't want people to live like in constant panic and paranoia. But I mean, melanoma and other skin cancers, those are ones that are, can be preventable are mitigated through like a minor health behavior. And so I do like, I, I yell at my mom, she lives in Florida, like stop going out between 10 and two to do your yard work, like weed afterward or early in the morning. As a young survivor, she knows all too well how easy it is for someone like her to be dismissed. She's been there and lived it. I mean, I think it was difficult for on two hands because I was, you know, black person and I was younger. Um, and so, over my uh, tenure here in patient advocacy and melanoma, I've learned that there are a lot of younger white women and men who had the same story, where they went to the doctor, you're young, you're fine, go home. And quite a few of them are no longer here to tell their story. So honestly, like I speak a lot for those people too. As a Black woman, she often feels like an outsider among other melanoma groups, where what she calls, quote, pale skin blindness is prevalent on Facebook, in traditional media, or even other advocacy campaigns. You're in these groups and people are always talking about, um, you know, not tanning. And I was not a tanner. And they're talking about, like, you know, praising pale skin. And like, I'll never have pale skin. So like, where do you fit in there? And you're, you're, you know, you're looking at these posts. And I remember there wasn't an, an advocacy organization that had a campaign called Pale Skin Rocks. And, and I did at one point, I was able to meet with them and I had a little conversation. And as an advocate, she works tirelessly to dispel myths about the disease and practice a more inclusive and educated approach to patient care especially in communities of color. I didn't have an acromelanoma, which everyone associates with people who are darker skinned. So that was another thing that was different for me. It was not on the soles or, you know, palms of my hand or under my nails. Um, so I was a complete outlier. Um, so I think one of the things I've been encouraging people to do is to think broadly and to understand that like we all have melanocyte cells. <laughs> I have these cells. I can develop this cancer. Um, so understanding that and not making me feel like the crazy outlier, you know, some, as I say, like weird mythical unicorn that somehow appeared. Um, I would appreciate that. And, and I encourage that because that can be a reason why people won't go to the doctor, right? They don't want to feel like some weird other. Ever since her graduate school days, Jacqueline had been interested in issues around identity, how people identify themselves, what goes into shaping their identity, how assumptions about our identity influence how we feel about ourselves. One identity that she refused to adopt was that of a survivor. She refused to be defined by others' perceptions of what a survivor should be people would say, oh, so you're a survivor. But it was the ways in which people said survivor and then what came behind that. And they'd say, oh, so is that why you're going to get your PhD? Or so so now you must be very religious, right? You pray all the time. Or 
you know, like, well, there were so many assumptions. Like, so you live every day like it's your last now. And I was like, no, you're like, he has grand appreciation for life. And I'm like, actually, no. Like, sometimes I just lay under the covers and cry and wonder why me. Or, you know, like, I, I do, like, have a list of people who I think are terrible humans. How come this didn't happen to them? Because I found myself just saying odd things to shock people when they come at me with these assumptions. And, you know, the fact that people assume, like, now I have faith, a faith structure, and now I have these goals. Like, I was a human who wanted to do things and had beliefs beforehand. Um, so then I started saying, well, this is interesting. Like, what is survivorship? Like, what is this? And who defines it? I kind of started wondering, like, is it being defined by people who haven't had cancer and you need these nice fluffy things so that, you know, it, it kind of mitigates that fear of what, you know, if you develop cancer, like it will make you feel better to think this is some great transformative experience. So that's what really led me to my uh, dissertation research because I started really becoming interested in survivorship. She is determined to live her life tell her story on her own terms and urges others to do the same. I would encourage anyone, um, if someone's trying to capture your story and it's not accurate, challenge it. I mean, it's your life and it's your story, so it should be accurate. And, you know, especially like when you think of something with cancer, this is something that's serious. It's, there's a lot of emotion. Which is not to say that she still doesn't have hard days. Her pity parties, she calls them. But thanks to her loving family, which now includes her fiancé, Brian, and yes, she nags him about sunscreen too, she is finding the strength to embrace her new life, whether it's facing down a stranger's reactions to her leg or setting the record straight on her path to healing or even who gets to tell her story. And I think that at some point for me, it's like, okay, I'm alive. My, you know, I'm healthy. My legs function. I can get up. And so trying to be thankful for the things that you do have and not worrying about these things that seem to be at a deficit is um, kind of the best advice I can give. Just really focusing, as cliched as it is, like to focus on the positives, to focus on the goods, and then to appreciate and like use them, like just go out and flourish and enjoy. And so that's one of the things I keep trying to remind myself, like you wake up today, today's a day that can be a good day. Like you make it as good as you can. Jacqueline did not set out to be an advocate. That had not been her plan. She had not wanted cancer to define her or divert her from her original dreams and goals. But that all changed when Dr. Sondak, her surgical oncologist, who had all the time in the world for all her questions and concerns, when he invited her to speak at an event. He's the one who started this train rolling and it's still going. I feel like I'm here, I'm a voice. And I know that I'm in the rarity being young, being a woman, being black in, in this space. And even just in oncology, right? Being younger and, and, and being a woman, being diagnosed with a stage three cancer. So I kind of feel like it's my duty in a way to speak out. Um, and I don't mind sharing my story. So I think that's the difference because ultimately if I can save one person from going through what I've gone through, then I feel like my job is done. If I can save at least one person, then I feel like it was, it's been worth it. She uses her voice and influence to speak out, raising awareness among Black and other communities of color about melanoma, smart sun behavior, and the importance of participating in clinical trials. 
Most recently, she's been urging greater adoption of the COVID vaccine. This is something that's been tested, right? Like no one's trying to kill off certain populations of people here. Um, it, it, for me, the most important thing to consider is that if you can take something that will mitigate your risk, that will make it where you don't have to be placed on a ventilator, that may be able to prolong your life, um, it might give you a better overall quality of life. Why not take a chance on yourself? And um, uh, I just encourage people to be your own advocate, ask the necessary questions and make informed decisions. Today, she continues her high-level advocacy at Vertex Pharmaceuticals, where she's Director of Grassroots Advocacy and State Government Affairs. She's a frequent speaker on Capitol Hill and has been featured in InStyle, Self Magazine, Cosmopolitan Magazine, Yahoo Health, and other international publications. She also serves on the boards of several major cancer advocacy organizations, including our own, the Cancer Support Community. Yet for all her success, Jacqueline's not afraid to admit she feels some ambivalence about where she now finds herself. It's not what she had planned or dreamed of so many years ago. This has not been an easy road. And if I had, if I could have not been diagnosed with stage three melanoma, yeah, I would, I would pick that card over the card that I've been dealt. I won't say that, that, you know, any other way. Her life may have taken a detour, but her commitment to doing good, always her North Star, remains stronger than ever. This is not by any stretch of the imagination where I thought my life would be. But now that I'm here, I wouldn't want it to be any other way. That was cancer patient advocate Jacqueline Smith. We've got to take a short break, but don't go away because we'll be meeting peg-legged tap dancer Evan Ruggiero after the break. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and today's episode is brought to you by Genentech. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355. Or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts, and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. 
Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Train, sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MagnoliaB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer, it's a lonely word terms I don't understand, choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer, created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Natalie Castellier. Senior Director at the Cancer Support Community. Today's episode is part of our special series, Young and Diagnosed, and brought to you by Genentech. Today, we're hearing from young adults whose lives took an unexpected detour when they were diagnosed with cancer. In this story, our protagonist is Evan Ruggiero, who survived osteosarcoma and the amputation of his leg, both of which might have put an end to this talented tap dancer's career dream to perform on the world's biggest stages. He was just in college when his journey through cancer began. I was in college and I woke up one morning with a pain in my leg and I I couldn't get out of bed. I just couldn't walk. I knew something was wrong. Um, So I had a bunch of x-rays taken and my doctor, uh, my initial doctor who took the first x-ray said, you know, go to Sloan Kettering in New York City 
and uh, have a uh, have an orthopedic specialist take a look at this. Uh, it looks kind of like a uh, tumor or a lesion of some sort, and I want you know a second set of eyes to check it out. So you know, initially I'm like, it's Sloan Kettering, like that's that's a hospital for cancer, and um, you know, he checked it out. He did a biopsy, and that's when I was told that I was diagnosed with osteosarcoma. Osteosarcoma uh, is a bone cancer. Um, it's typically found in children and young teens, um, you know, anywhere from ages seven to 16, kind of like comes in like around that uh, growth spurt time. Um, and I was 19 when I was diagnosed. It happened out of the blue. It was really super rare. It was tough to wrap his head around how his life was about to change. It's crazy, but I'll tell you the exact first thing that I said when I was told that I was being diagnosed with osteosarcoma. And then I'll tell you what, what, what happened after. The first thing that I said was, you know, I j- just woken up from surgery. I'm told that I have osteosarcoma and I kind of had this like, well, I guess I got to buy a lot of hats now. Because in my head, I'm like, I'm going to be going through chemo. Like, here we go. Bring it on. And yeah, I spent my first night... Uh, in the hospital then the second day the second day was the real serious and emotional day where all of it just kind of hit me like this tidal wave Um, because it got very real at that point Um, you know you're processing everything you know within 24 hours of okay like I have cancer I'm here like what am I going to do what's my life going to be like Um, and at first you know you know you kind of want to play it off and then it boom it hits you As it happened, chemotherapy was initially off the table. Because his pathology report defined his cancer as intermediate grade, the doctors first recommended surgery, a complicated and drawn out series of procedures intended to save his leg and protect him from more rigorous therapies. It didn't work. Later down the line, I did wind up having to go through chemotherapy, and that particular day was just as intense as my day one. Because at that point, I was like, ah, like I've already done all these million, you know, you know, one million things <laughs> to try and survive, and here we are now. You're telling me now after you know, I had, so then I had my leg amputated seven months later, and then boom, chemotherapy is like now you got to do it. I'm like, what the heck? It was a lot to process. There was school. There was his career. And he was impatient to start both. The biggest thing was, am I going to finish school? Um, I really wanted to be there. I really wanted to pursue a career in uh, uh, in the arts. I wanted to be on Broadway. Uh, I wanted to be singing, dancing, acting, being TV, film, whatever it was, uh, you know, whatever medium it, it would be. And um, I didn't, I didn't really understand why I had to put my life on hold. It was disorienting, to say the least. I think, I think the, the, the hardest thing that I had to grasp at that point is that, you know, you, like, you think of cancer and you think, wow, like, um, like, I felt totally normal yesterday, totally fine. Now all of a sudden someone tells me that I have cancer and I'm going to feel like hell for like, the next two years and I don't under and and it just comes out of nowhere and then your life completely changes and it's like you wake up a healthy person on a Tuesday and then on a Wednesday you have cancer and everything is just turned upside down 
and I couldn't understand it because even after my diagnosis, I still felt fucked. It was like, yeah, my leg hurts a little bit, and the, and the biopsy happened, and and I told that I have cancer, but you know, why does it have to be like this this entire time? Why? Why can't we fix it? Why can't we just, why can't there just be something that I can take that just eradicates the cancer out of my body? Because um, then that was the most frustrating thing is the amount of time that I knew I was going to be in for. And he was in for it. He was facing his biggest crisis yet. So I initially was just trying to, you know, learn how to live as an amputee and then I get hit with the second you know dose of information that I'm also going to have to go through chemo so now there's the there's the obvious physical um, change with my body of losing one leg but now I also when I look in the mirror I see not only I'm missing a leg but I see the effects of the chemo I have no hair my eyes are all sunken in there's black yellow circles around them I Normally, I weigh about 165 pounds. I'm down to 109 pounds. Uh, the prosthetic that I have is like falling off sometimes because I can't keep my body weight up. Is I'm still trying to get around in any possible way that I can, and you know, and, and it's a psychological, you know, it, it, it has this, this this psychological effect on you because you're looking at yourself and you're like, that's not me, that's not me, but that's that's you. But it's just you for for a little bit and that's what I had to keep telling myself and that's why instead of taking another year off of school I decided to go back to school. He powered through and found a refuge with his friends. And it was great to figure out my new life with my friends because my friends kind of looked at it as this kind of fun I don't want to say it was like this fun experiment, but it was just like Evan's back and like we're just going to do whatever we can to make Evan have a great time. And if if Evan wants to go out, we're going out. And a lot of times what happened was I was just like, yeah, come on, I'm up for whatever you guys want to do. And I kind of just went along with it. And it was like I was just in college. You know, we were we were 19, 20, 21 years old and we were just we were just college kids, you know, musical theater kids. It's, you know, we're like just one big pack and we, we travel around campus together, sing songs, being loud and we're nuts. <laughs> and it, that that was the normalcy that I needed. A welcome return to normalcy that included midnight runs to, of all places, McDonald's, the last place you'd expect someone on chemo to go. Chemotherapy was so weird in a sense where you would, you know, you, you take this medicine and then you can't eat some very specific foods. And it was like, I couldn't eat anything that was like organic or uh, like salads or anything like that because of any sort of bacteria that could be on it. And everything, you know, all of my uh, uh, utensils had to be like very specifically cleaned or like wrapped up in plastic before if I went to pizza I had to have a whole pie that couldn't be cut with the uh, same tools just because of you know you know uh, um, contamination you know bacteria getting from the roller you know cutter over from one pizza to the other so 
at the end of the day where I was like, well, what the heck can I eat? And like, there was this McDonald's on campus and we just found ourselves going to McDonald's like every once in a while because go figure that was still on the list of approved things that I could eat. So we were like, yeah, we'll just go to McDonald's every once in a while or, you know, at midnight and someone would take me out for a snack or something. Or, you know, I'd have my wheelchair or my crutches or whatever it may be. From those midnight food runs to movie nights, they kept him on track and focused on living. It was just the whole experience and, and you know, they were, I, I could see that they were excited to, to be there with me and to figure this whole thing out. And then I could see that they were also scared and sad. And, um, you know, I, I remember I had a couple of friends come by the house right before school started and, and uh, they, <laughs> they, they told me this afterwards, but uh, they, you know, they were like all excited. And then they said, you know, once I like, like walked away, I went inside for something, they bawled their eyes out. They were just so sad. And, um, you know, I, I, I just remember coming back out and just be like, hey, like, here we are. Like, come on, let's have some popcorn. Let's have some fun or whatever. And I just tried to just be myself. Just like any other normal musical theater kid. When I was at school, and this is what one of my teachers said, she just said, when you're here at school, just, just be here at school. Just be a student. Just be whoever it is that you are. And then when you're at the hospital, just be there. Don't worry about school. Don't worry about anything happening outside. Just focus on what you have to do there and listen to your doctors. Along with his friends, Evan's family was a rock. It was his mother, father, and sister whose care and devotion kept him going even when times were at their worst. It's it's crazy. You know, here I am sitting in a hospital bed and I'm so vulnerable. Uh, you know, like... I, I can't do anything for myself, really. And just watching my mom just fight and fight and advocate for me and yell at my doctors. And, you know, and, and I remember there was one day that I was having these terrible, terrible side effects of the chemotherapy. And I I was on this, you know, this, this, this uh, I guess, you know, pain reliever uh, for mouth sores. And... All of a sudden, I just kind of like slipped and started to fade out and my eyes shut and I just kind of got very, very sleepy and I couldn't see anything, but I could still hear things and I could hear in the background, you know, doctors coming in my room and my mom just like screaming at the top of her lungs, just saying, um, you know, more like it was like the last thing that, that, I, that I remember was, um, it, you know, you know, if you know, if I lose him, he's my only son. He's my son. I can't lose him. I cannot lose him. And um, all of a sudden, just hearing that, I just kind of was like, what? And I just like, I just, I just came back. I don't know what happened. Um, but I just, I just remember her just, just <laughs> fighting and yelling at people <laughs> all the time, just to, just to make sure that I was taken care of. And um, you know, it's, it. I, I don't think it's, it, it's because, you know, she's a difficult person. I just think it was because she has so much love. Everyone had their role to play. You know, my dad, you know, he went to work every single day in Manhattan. He, you know, made sure that my sister was going to school. He, you know, took care of her. And, you know, my mom took care of me every day. Um, my dad isn't necessarily one who's going to get up and fight and yell at doctors and advocate, whereas my mom was, you know, stuck by my side and and i guess just in all that uh in all in all that time you know spending with her at the hospital it just it just kind of rubbed off on me <laughs> in a way uh that spirit 
spirit is still with me. But not everyone quite knew their lines or how to act. And it's interesting because there, there, there are those people who are like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. If there's anything that I could do for you, let me know people and then there are the people <laughs> and then there are the people who who are like oh my gosh if there's anything i can do for you let me know and you let them know and then those are the ones <laughs> who who you who you know it, and and those are the ones who may surprise you you know because anything at that point could happen even with supportive family and friends the adjustment has not always been easy and, and, and it's still, you know, you know, to this day, uh, uh, an everyday thing that just because it's, it, you know, my leg is very apparent, it's very obvious. And so I have children ask me all the time, I'd, I'd be out in a wheelchair or I have a leg, you know, I have my new leg on, I wasn't necessarily walking yet. And I remember, you know, being out and, you know, hearing the kids say, hey, he's got a robot leg. What happened to him? And I... The first time I heard it, I was like, I, I, I kind of, I felt so weird. I felt, I felt upset. I felt embarrassed, like crushed in a way. I was like, oh no, is this my life? Like, what's, what happened? Now it's, you know, it, it's the complete opposite. I was, I was just filming a movie, and a kid who was on the set came up to me, and he was like, so, so, so uh. So how'd you get that robot leg? Like, like, why do you have that? And I said, oh, well, like, well, I had cancer many years ago. And, and, this, and, and I was like, and look at all these cool things that I can do with it. And you, know, and you know that I can tap dance. You see my other leg. And, and it's just a different, um, I feel like, like I have a whole different mentality on, you know, and approach with the whole thing. I'm so much more comfortable now. Back then, it was just a whole, uh, <laughs> a whole different ballgame. Against all odds, the musical theater kid has grown into an adult performer, still able to do what he loves most, tap dancing. He was inspired, he says, by Peg Leg Bates, the legendary African-American entertainer who taught himself to dance using a wooden leg. It's crazy. It goes back even before I had cancer. Um, I saw a video of Peg Leg Bates in my tap class when I was 16 years old and didn't think much of it other than the fact that, whoa, this guy's laying it down with one leg and he's doing better than most people with two two, uh, two legs and that's really awesome. Um, Then when I was told that I had to have um, my diagnosis with cancer and, you know, and, and I was told that my leg was being amputated. Um, I had that flashback to that day sitting in class and just right, I said, Hey, you know what? Peg leg bass was a one legged tap dancer. Why can't I tap dance as well? Um, I mean, it, it's, and I just said that that's what I'm going to do. I'll figure it out. And then there were the people on it were like, what, what's happening? What? And then they were just so sad. They were sad. And, and I think they totally missed what I was going for. They, it just went right over their heads. And they, were, they didn't see, you know, the optimism, the, the positivity of like, I know I'm going to lose my leg and it's going to be a real crappy situation, but I'm going to continue to dance. I'm going to find a way. Look at Peg Leg Bates right here. He is still killing it with one leg and I'm going to do that one day too. 
Despite, or perhaps because of his challenging journey, Evans let nothing stand in the way of the career of his dreams. Even during COVID, when theaters closed down and performances were canceled, he found new ways to adapt. I had to adapt. You know, I had to adapt when I lost my leg. I had to figure out how I was going to get through this. Um, lots of things during the pandemic went virtual. I was able to pick up some classes here or there via Zoom. Um, but honestly, my main source of income uh, was selling cars. I took a break from performing on stage and I started performing in a showroom. And that was a lot of fun because it's kind of the same thing in a way. I followed, you know, pretty much a script, not necessarily about selling cars, but I gave myself a script. Um, as you see, I have no problem talking. I love talking to people. I talk about whatever it may be. I love Subarus, always drove them. And so I started working at a Subaru. And from there, I just I just told people how I was this out-of-work actor <laughs> because of the pandemic. And I'm just kind of doing this as a survival job. I love Subarus. I can tell you all about the cars, their all-wheel drive system, what they excel in, what they're not so great at if you're comparing it to a different car. And then I would go into how I have one leg and how I tap dance and I travel the world. I'd show them photos of me and Joe Biden, me and Ellen, me and the president of Egypt, the whole thing. They're like, what? I'm like, I know, I know, like I'm not really a car salesman, but if you want to buy a car, we got great finance offers, 0% right now, 1.9 up to 72 months. Leasing's not so great, but if you want a low monthly payment, we could certainly make it happen. And then they buy a car. It was such a fascinating world and just experience to kind of navigate through the pandemic. He even offered prospective car buyers lessons on how to drive a stick shift. So I do, yeah, because I drive stick shift. Uh, and I, I mean, I used to race my old Subarus at the track. I still have a bunch of stick cars. And so we'd have people coming in and, and I'd be like, yeah, like I have this one on the lot here. And they'd be like, oh, but I've never driven stick shift before. I'm like, hold on a minute, hold on. And I would like spin my leg around, put it into driving mode, show them exactly. In an odd sort of way, cancer has given Evan a certain Zen attitude and perspective about his life in the arts. It's given him a more balanced view of how he thinks about his career. I think the hardest thing about navigating um, a career in, in the arts industry is, is, is seeing what everybody else is doing and what you're not doing. Um, and, and, and that's the reality of it. And I think the, the biggest thing to focus on is just yourself and that your career is not going to be somebody else's career and their career is not going to be yours. Um, you know, you, you can't look at what this person's doing and saying, why didn't I get that job? Man, I wish I got that job or I wish I was good enough um, because there'll be something for you right around the corner. His priorities. Not everyone's going to have the same opportunities. You know, I mean, I would have never thought that I would have had the opportunity to speak, you know, uh, at the fighting uh, uh, cancer uh, initiative back in 2018. I would have never spoken for, uh, you know, Ellen or the president of Egypt or, you know, uh, performing at Carnegie Hall or having some of these, you know, great moments. And and maybe there's somebody else who's saying, man, I wish I could do that. And then I'm over here saying like, man, I wish I could be in your show, you know, but, but, but that's the thing to take from it is that it's that we're all going to have our own paths of getting there. And, you know, it's, it's just, you know, trying to stay positive and trying to, you know, to be happy and stay level headed with, you know, with what you're doing. And the opportunities that lie ahead.
But, you know, with cancer, you know, the flip side to it is that sometimes I leave these auditions and I just think, okay, whatever, like that happened, like on to the next one. Um, and I don't think about it too much uh, because of cancer and because of what I've been through. Um, that was so, you know, so life-threatening. And, you know, as much as I would love to have a job <laughs> on Broadway and, and be working, sometimes, you know, you, you, you look at, you take a step back from it, you know, and, and, and you don't sweat it so much. And you're like, wow, like I could be in the hospital again get in, you know, methotrexate, cisplatin, doxorubicin, four days a week, three weeks at a time, be a neutropenic, my fourth week, then, you know, getting one good week, one good week to do what, whatever it may be. And now I look at it and I have so many good weeks, so many good weeks to do whatever I want to do. And if I get the opportunity to get an audition for a show and, you know, it works out great. If it doesn't work out, there'll be another one that comes along. Since the world has opened up again, Evan has returned to performing on stage, screen, and before audiences at advocacy organizations. In November, he began a two-month run at the Olney Theater, just outside Washington, D.C., where he played the Beast in Beauty and the Beast. What I'm excited about Beauty, about Beauty and the Beast is that I get to be the Beast with a peg leg. So, like, we're incorporating my leg into you know the character of the beast you know um so i want to so i want to play these roles like that are already existing on broadway with as evan you know with a peg leg and have you know see what that brings to the table you know like fiera with one leg uh king george with one leg uh you know that sort of thing like the heroes of ancient myth Evan has emerged transformed by his experiences and is bringing that same creative energy to transforming the art that he loves. He is more than ready for his next close-up. Thank you for joining me today for this special episode of Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Natalie Castelli, Senior Director of the Cancer Support Community. As I mentioned earlier in the show, the Cancer Support Community provides a multitude of in-person, online, and telephonic support. For more information about our programs, visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org or call us at 888-793-9355. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. You've been listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Connect with the Cancer Support Community every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network and online at cancersupportcommunity.org.